helping disciple makers ignite a movement locally and globally. This is the Disciple First Podcast. Now, here's your host, Craig Ethridge. Welcome back to the Disciple First Podcast. My name is Craig Etheridge. I'm your host, and this is a podcast by disciple makers and for disciple makers. And today we're listening in on a sermon that Robbie Gallaty preached at the Flashpoint Conference in Dallas. Robbie is a senior pastor at Long Hollow Baptist Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee. He was radically saved out of a life of drug addiction on November the 12th, 2002. In 2008, he founded Replicate Ministries to educate, equip, and empower believers to make disciples who make disciples. And Robbie, in this sermon, really unpacks the importance of accountability, what it is, what it's not. It's a great message to help you be more effective in accountability and making disciples. So listen in on Robbie Gallaty on the importance of accountability. Well, it's a joy to be here. Um, so appreciate Craig and and how God is using him to uh, to ring the bell for discipleship here, uh, not only not only in Texas but around around the country. And so, thank you, brother. The little bit of time we got to spend together, uh, I believe we share the same heart uh, to make the Great Commission a priority. And I believe you believe that as well, right? That's why you're here. And so there's no greater group I'd love to speak to uh, than men and women who take the Great Commission seriously. And uh, I want to speak to you today in our time together um, a message I think is ultimately important. It's one of the essential elements of a discipling relationship. And I want to talk to you tonight about accountability and why there is strength in numbers. And uh, we're going to talk about accountability because I really believe, as I've prayed about this, how do we prove to a lost world uh, our love for them? It's by showing love and sharing love with other disciples in community. And one of the ways we do that is through accountability. Now, before we begin, I just want to tell you a quick testimony uh, of my own personal life and how I came to faith and the Lord Jesus Christ, and really how I got to be so passionate about disciple-making. Uh, I was actually raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. I was born and raised uh, in New Orleans, and uh, I was Roman Catholic, half Italian. We went to church on Sunday. If we missed church on Sunday, we went to confession on Saturday, and uh, lived like I wanted the rest of the time. And, and I knew who Jesus was, but I didn't have a relationship with him. And uh, I would get a scholarship to play basketball at UNC Greensboro. I was going to go play uh, basketball. And the girl I was dating at the time who was going to LSU, she's like, there's no way you're going to go that far away. You need to stay close to home. And so I literally opened the phone book up and found William Carey College in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Has anybody heard of the school? Uh, neither had I at the time. And so <laughs> I literally, thank you, a graduate of William Carey. Come on, brother. That, that's a first, okay? I, I've told this testimony many times, and yet to have someone know where it is, much less graduate. But I went to William Carey, and I was an unbeliever there uh, 
as, as a Roman Catholic, I got a scholarship to play basketball, and the girl that I was dating at the time thinks I'm cheating on her, and so two weeks into the school year, she breaks up with me, and now I am stuck as a Roman Catholic on the campus of a Southern Baptist University. Now, I don't know if you know what that means, but I was the target of every evangelism class on campus, right? Who do we tell about Jesus, it's Robbie. And so they, they told me about Christ, but uh, it wasn't until 1995 uh, that a man by the name of Jeremy Brown, I think Jeremy was the only one brave enough to tell me about Jesus. Uh, he was about 6'5", and he came up one night, and he said, Robbie, I know you don't want Christ, but if you ever feel like everyone's turned their back on you, you can cry out to the Lord through repentance and faith. And I'd say, Jeremy, thanks, but no thanks. Well, I would remember that seven years later. Uh, I got out of school, I started a computer business, it was successful for a season, went belly up, and then I decided I didn't want to do anything in the world as far as business goes, and I started to train Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, kind of an MMA, no holes barred kind of fighting, and uh, I was 6'6", 290 pounds back then, I was at a restaurant bar one night, a guy sees me in the city, he's like, Robbie would you be interested in being the head bouncer of my club, downtown New Orleans, in the middle of Mardi Gras? I said, let me get this straight. You're going to pay me to fight. I'm in, right? And so I did that for a season. Uh, I had a guy pull a gun out on me, and so I realized I needed to have a career change. I moved from bouncing to bartending, right? So, so I made like a lateral move outside the club, inside the club. And I was driving home from work, November 22nd, 1999, and an 18-wheeler came across two lanes of traffic, rear-ended me into the guardrail. Uh, I herniated two discs in my neck, two in my back, went to the doctors. They said, it's a miracle you made it out with the little bit of damage you have. We're going to send you home with four things for the pain. And uh, I went home that day from the hospital at 22 years old with Oxycontin, Valium, Soma, and Percocet. And you know the story. Within three months, I'm addicted to pharmaceutical drugs. I have this insatiable desire to get high, and I moved from pharmaceutical drugs to street drugs, and I moved to heroin and cocaine. A guy's like, why are you going to fool with pharmaceutical drugs? You can buy them in bulk, you can baggy it up, and you can sell it and fuel your habit. And uh, times were good in the beginning. I had tons of money. Uh, I did what I wanted, bought what I wanted. Uh, but then in that year, we brought in the year with my buddy dying of a heroin overdose. And from 2000 to 2003, I lost not one or two friends. I lost eight friends to drug and alcohol-related deaths, six went to jail. Uh, after two rehab treatments, long story short, I remembered what a guy in college told me about Jesus. I just want you to know, I was the last guy you would ever think would come to know the Lord. But I was in a desperate place, and I called to the Lord, and I said, God, if you're real, I promise you I'll share my life or give my life to you, and I promise you I will tell people about what you did. Uh, that was November 12, 2002, 13 years ago. Well, for the next nine months, I knew that I should get into the Bible and read the Bible, but I didn't know how. I knew that I should memorize Scripture. I didn't know how. I knew that I should pray, and I tried to pray, but I knew the rote prayers, right? The Our Father and the Hail Mary. And I didn't know how to have an intimate relationship with God. And I'm at church one Sunday, Edgewater Baptist Church. Dr. Jim Shaddix was the pastor, and a man by the name of David Platt walks across the church campus. And he says, hey, Robbie, God's placed you on my heart. Would you want to meet once a week to study the Bible, memorize scripture, and pray? I said, I'd love to, David. He said, pray about it. I said, I already have. When do we start? And I just want to tell you, for the next two years of my life, David was very influential in my life. He took me to General 
uh, to the Chinese restaurant over General So's chicken, and we met in an intimate, accountable group. The group grew to about seven or eight guys, and for the next two years, he walked with me through life. He was the one who encouraged me to go to seminary. He encouraged me to get a doctorate. He encouraged me uh, to give my life to the preaching ministry of the Word. He baptized me, stood in my wedding. And I say all that to say, I wonder often how different would my life be today if it was not for that intimate, accountable relationship back then. And, and I know for sure I wouldn't be here. Uh, but the better question is, how different would our lives be if people would have gotten serious about discipling us, right? And we can't change the past. But one of the questions I want us to think about in our time together, what could happen in our life if we really got serious about being accountable to one another, to be an intimate, relational, reproducible, disciple-making groups? I think we'd have a New Testament church, and I think we'd change the lives of those around us. See, accountability is that indispensable quality that a lot of people know about, but we really don't understand it. Uh, accountability is the ability that you give someone to speak into your life, to, to, to call you out when you get off track, uh, to hold you accountable for some of the promises that you made uh, in life. I love what former president of the FCA, Rod Hadley, said. Here's what he said about accountability. He said, accountability will not remove sin or keep you from sin, but it helps you become aware of your sin, and it helps you to focus your attention back on Christ. Watch this. Being accountable to another person takes honesty, and if it doesn't exist, it will be a meaningless experience. Now, I found that in my own discipleship groups, I found that if there's no clear accountability or no clear expectations, sadly, the group can wander, right? So here's an adage I want you to get about accountability. R write this down. What doesn't get measured most of the time doesn't get done, right? What doesn't get measured doesn't get done. I'll say it another way. What gets measured gets accomplished, right? So, so if we measure things, particularly in discipling relationships, they get accomplished. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Well, Robbie, the word accountability is not in the Bible. I, I don't see the word in the Bible. And you're right. We don't find the word. But we find the concept everywhere, right? I mean, it started all the way back in the garden. Remember when Adam and Eve were approached by God? Adam, what did he say? Audience participation. <laughs> what did God say? Adam, what? Where? Where are you? you know, who told you you were naked? Well, well, God's holding him accountable, Genesis chapter 3. We see accountability also in the life of Sam, Samuel and Saul, remember? 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 8. We see accountability in the life of Nathan and David. Remember when David blew it, God sent Nathan to do what? To hold him accountable. We see accountability in the life of Peter and Jesus, right? Uh, he holds Peter accountable. We see accountability in the life of Jesus and the apostles. Luke 10, he sends them out and they come back. Now you might be saying, well, well, well Robbie, I'm not really accountable to anybody. <laughs> you see, I, I'm not accountable to anyone. Did you know that every believer is accountable to three different elements or three different categories in life? All of us are, whether we want to be or not. The first one is this, we're accountable to God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, I think is the proof text of that. We're accountable to God. Secondly, same book, Hebrews chapter 13, we're accountable to spiritual leaders. 
But more importantly, I think we're accountable to other believers. Proverbs 27, 17. So here's what I want to do in our time together. I want to show you today the importance of an accountable, intimate, discipling relationship so that you, through the process, will implement that as a means for spiritual growth in your life. So I want to show you why accountability is important, and I want to show you a biblical model for accountability, and I want to do that from the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. And when you get there, uh, you can say word. We say word uh, at Long Hollow because we believe it's the word that changes our life. Amen? And uh, we want to get into the word until the word gets into us. And it lets me know that you're awake. My mom used to tell me in church, we don't talk in church. I always used to talk in church. She would take those two fingers. She would lean over and pinch my leg and she'd say, we don't talk in church. Now my mom attends my church. And so we say word, mom, if she was here <laughs> today. And she says word, amen? So when you're there, um, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9, say word. Say it like you mean it. Amen. The word of the Lord. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion, that's a key word there, I'm reading out of the Holman. His companion can lift him up, but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three, here it is, strands is not easily broken. Now, now, what Solomon's doing in this text is this. He's come to the conclusion up to this point that compulsive working is vanity. See, people trying to work for their identity is vanity. And basically, he says it's a grave misfortune and it's a miserable task. And what he does is he compares that to relationships with other people. And what he's saying is, there is great value in our relationships with other people. And I would choose relationships over riches, fame, or fortune. That's what he's about to tell us. Now, these two verses have been used in a number of contexts. Where would you normally hear this passage preached? At what engagement? What, what encounter? A wedding, right? You'd hear that, a threefold chord, and, and, and the husband's here, and the wife's here, and God's here. And that's true. You may even hear it in the context of working hard, of companionship with other people. I want to use it today in the context of disciple-making. I want to use it in the context of disciple-making. Here's the first instance I want you to see in the text, the first element. Write it down. Accountability supports your work. Accountability supports your work. Now, when we read verse 9, we know that a text outside of its context is a pretext for a proof text, right? Which means you can make it anything you want. So what we want to do is we want to put this back in its context. And what we'll, note, what we'll notice is that in verse 8, Solomon does something interesting. Notice what he says. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, so... If I could find it. There is a person without a companion, without even a son or a brother, 
And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. So why am I struggling for, or whom am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself from good? This too is futile and a miserable task. And what he's comparing here is working alone. And although he's talking about working in the world, we can talk about it in the context of working for the Lord. He says a man's working alone, and he compares that to working within a group. And the key word here is companion. So so I want you to circle it. If you circle in your Bibles, you can do that. The word there, companion, is another word in the language of the Old Testament for partner. It's another word for a covenant relationship. It's another word for friendship. It's another word for fellowship. And I think what Solomon would say is the same thing God said in Genesis 3. We were never created to be alone, right? Remember God saw that about about Adam. He, he, he saw that everything he created was good, and then he saw that it was not what? Not good for man to be alone. Do you know in the language or in the context there, it's the first time God uses the word not good. Everything up to that point is what? Good. Good. He saw that it was good, and, and it was good, and then he said it's not good. What's not good? So, so that man would not be alone. Do you know companionship in the Christian life is always better than competition? Can anybody amen to that? Companionship is always better than competition. You will be hard-pressed to find a Jewish book of world records. Did you know that? You won't find one. (laughs) Why will you not find the Jewish book of world records? Because it doesn't exist. I mean, why would I compete against my brother? This is a person in the trenches with me. This is a partner in ministry. Why am I going to compete against my brother? That's a Hellenistic idea. That's a Roman idea. That's not a Hebraic idea. The Hebraic mentality is we work together for a common cause. Why am I going to compete against my brother? And so the idea here is we work together. Why? Because Working together is better than working alone. I love what Chuck Swindoll says about this. He said, in a day of tarnished leaders, fallen heroes, busy parents, frantic coaches, arrogant authority figures, and egg-headed geniuses, we need mentors like never before. We need guides, not gods approachable, caring souls who help us negotiate our way through the labyrinth of life. Amen? So he's saying is we desperately need people to come alongside and walk with us. So accountability, first of all, in the text, will support our work. But the second thing it'll do, write this down, accountability strengthens our walk. Accountability strengthens our walk. Look at verse 10. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? So if you were walking in in one of those Palestinian cities or walking uh, during the night, there were not street lamps to light your way, it was very easy for you to fall into a crevice and hurt yourself. And so what he's saying here is this, it's better to have a companion with you. Now, I was thinking about this, what was a good way to illustrate it? And I thought when I used to go to 
uh, school field trips. You may remember this years ago. When we would get off the bus, the teacher would line us all up and she would say one thing to us. She'd say, we're going to implement the buddy system. You remember this? Remember what the buddy system was? It was you, Robbie, are responsible for Joe. And if Joe gets out of your sight, you need to look for Joe. And Joe, you're responsible for Robbie, right? And the buddy system's a great model for the Christian life, right? We all need a buddy. Where's my buddy when you need him, right? Glad, I'm glad that went away. But anyway, uh, do you remember the old television commercial years ago from the early 90s, 90s with Miss Fletcher? You remember this? Miss Fletcher just happens to be walking home. She's an elderly lady, and she happens to trip and fall, and she falls away from the phone. Well, luckily for Miss Fletcher, she has around her neck a life call medical alert pendant. Do you remember this commercial? And Miss Fletcher sprawled out on the floor, and she can't get the phone, but she hits the medical alert pendant, and here's what she says. What, you remember? Help, I've fallen. And I can't get up, right? Now, now luckily uh, for her, they say, Miss Fletcher, help is on the way, right? It's a wonderful picture of how we need help, right? Whether you admit it or not now, wouldn't you agree? We all need help in the Christian life. The beautiful thing about a discipling relationship is that we have help. See, a companion is a lifeline we can call when life falls apart. Let me say that again. A companion is a lifeline we can call upon when life falls apart. One of the great things about discipleship is that I have some of my closest friends in life who have come through discipling relations with me. And I know you could say the same thing, right? And what I tell people is this, you need to have a few friends on your hand, which I call 2 a.m. friends. Do you have them? Well, what's a 2 a.m. friend? A 2 a.m. friend is when your life falls apart and you don't know who to call, but you can call that 2 a.m. friend and they're going to pick up the phone and they're going to come over. And many people say, well, I don't have that friend. I have a lot of those friends I've developed through the years in discipling relationships. And it comes through intimacy and accountability. I love what he's saying here. He's saying it's easy to grow cold when you're traveling. Look what he says. And he said, it's better to have someone with you so you can lie together. Now, traveling was difficult, not only because of the animals and the robbers, but because of the conditions. Uh, in the first century, it was very cold. It'd get cold at night. Remember, Jerusalem is on a mountain. So it'd get real cold at night. And so one of the ways you stayed warm is you could take blankets with you, but the problem is you had to carry blankets so what they would do in the first century is they would sleep back to back. If, you're, if your spouse was there, obviously you could sleep with them, but if you're a man, you would sleep back to back. Why? Because you would keep each other warm. Do you know what I found out in the Christian life? It's very easy to grow cold and bitter if you're isolated and alone. And, and sometimes I find that people who need friendships and accountability the most are the ones who are not engaged in it. And so if your life has grown cold and you feel isolated, I just want to encourage you to get involved in an intimate, accountable discipleship relationship. That was Robbie Gallaty talking about accountability. And we're going to pick up the back half of that sermon in our next broadcast. But if you would like to know more about how to make disciples, you can go to disciplefirst.com. That's your one-stop shop.
for disciple-making resources. Or you can also go to the flashpointconference.com. It's a conference that we do all across the country where we feature people like Robbie and others that are making disciples in the local church. Go to the flashpointconference.com to find out a conference near you or again, disciplefirst.com. And until then, go make disciples. Disciples.